we're selling every one of our flips for about 10%, well, I'd say about 8%, higher than what we initially thought we could sell it for. Welcome, my friend, to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. And before we get into the show in today's episode, which I know you'll get a lot of value from because we're, we stay out of all the fluffy stuff and we get straight into the good stuff of real estate investing advice, I want to give a quick shout out to today's sponsor, and that's Patch of Land. Uh, they are making this show possible, and they're making tons of flipping projects possible all across the country. If you don't know about Patch of Land, then they are the number one company to go to for uh, projects that you're flipping uh, because they have all the money available right now. Um, once you get approved for your your deal and yourself as a sponsor or a borrower, um, you're going to be funded by them. And then they go raise the money through their crowdfunding platform. So you don't have to worry about all that. They'll take care of the, the money and the funding for you. You just have to worry about making sure your project's, project's a success. Uh, they've got something really cool for you. So um, if you are just learning about crowdfunding, uh, they've come up with a guide. It's called the Top 10 Crowdfunding Questions Guide. And they're all the, the questions that you might be asking yourself. And they're all the answers. They don't leave you hanging. They've got answers too. All the answers to those, those 10 crowdfunding questions. So you can go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever and get that guide. Uh, and if you think you know everything about crowdfunding, I checked this guide out just in case because there are some interesting aspects that you'll learn. So go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever and get that guide. Hi, best ever listeners. How you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless and this is a show where we cut out all the fluff. We get straight to the actionable insights that help you move your real estate investing business forward. Let's see. We've talked to Robert Kiyosaki from Rich Dad Poor Dad, Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank, Jay Papazon from all those best-selling books he's written with Gary Keller of the Keller Williams Group. And today we've got a special treat. We've got two guests, so double trouble. We've got Josh Collins and John Sears from Charlotte, North Carolina. How are you two doing? Doing well, man. How are you? I'm doing very well and excited to have you both on. And usually we only do one guest, but I've I've had two guests on the show, I think two other times before, maybe once or twice uh, before, and it's gone really well. So I'm excited to do this and a little bit about each of their background, and then I'll let them talk about their background a little bit in more detail. They're serial entrepreneurs and primarily focused within the real estate industry, John's a business entrepreneur active in real estate and construction. He's established 15 real estate offices across the country. And Josh is a business entrepreneur as well, who established and scaled several businesses to national recognition, most notably Press Pro. And basically, they have different real estate companies from home renovation and new construction. Uh, They buy and hold properties. They flip. They also do multifamily investing and if you check out their website, PressPro.com, you can get a sense of what they're up to, um, which is custom home building and, and renovations uh, within the Charlotte area. So 
non-real estate related, but interesting. They actually met through, or their first business was a home washing business. Um, So I guess that's kind of real estate related, but um, not investing purposes. And uh, they've been partners ever since for nine years. So with that being said, you two want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, our background, you kind of summed it up. We started uh, in business doing some house washing, pressure washing, soft washing, and uh, we're doing a little bit of investing personally at that time. And so, you know, being that we were in the same vein already, you know, we just kind of did decided we were going to team up and do that together. So from there, we started working uh, with real estate investors, uh, selling them houses and um, kind of learning everything that an investor looks for to take it from the, you know, from the personal investment level to the next step, which is working with investors. And since then, we've listed uh, properties for banks, um, for hedge funds and, you know, all types of different larger entities. You know, we're working on acquisition for some of the biggest hedge funds in America and in addition to all that, you know, we started a construction company to kind of fill the gap in the market when it came to just a shortage of supply. So we're actually building houses. We have we build custom homes, but we also build uh, multifamily and smaller investment style homes that, like I said, will plug that gap when the when the prices are getting driven up by uh, a low uh, high demand, low supply. So um, fast forward to today, you know, we're, we're building houses, working with corporate investors, investing ourselves on, on a you know, pretty decent size scale and um, having a really fun time doing it. Can you take us through just the, the timeline of how each of these companies were created and kind of walk us through the progression? Yeah, absolutely. This is John now. But basically, Josh and I started off as real estate agents. Uh, We quickly realized that there was a huge foreclosure opportunity hitting um, our nation. In other words, when I say opportunity, most people say, well, that's not an opportunity. That's, That's horrible. Well, for us, we recognize that there's banks out there that needed help liquidating these assets. So Josh and I began to create real estate companies and establish real estate companies all around the country, actually, from you know state of Washington to Florida to Delaware, um, you name it. We, we were in a lot of places. We actually had uh, 17 offices that we that we actually opened during the foreclosure process. So we started there. At one point, we represented probably 1,800 at one point in time listings within our companies uh, of mainly REO uh, properties. So it started there. We quickly got thrust into a very high volume type of industry. While we were doing that, the demand on our offices from the banks were to do property inspections, to get repair bids, to manage contractors, et cetera. A lot of property preservation and, um, and renovation work that was needed to be managed. So we developed an online platform that allowed our offices to recruit vendors, contractors, to plug in inspectors and uh, basically task out all of the responsibilities in the REO process. So we did that for internal purposes. And then we realized, man, this is a really great product. Brokers and banks, they could use this direct. So we, we grew up to about 3,000 contractors in our network with PressPro.com. And we developed this online platform where we managed and repaired thousands of jobs nationwide from our headquarters of Charlotte as a service. And so to answer your question, it started off in the, the boom of the foreclosures where we got in, 
set up processes and procedures to handle high volume, then moved into the construction realm. Obviously, foreclosures are, are very much diminished now, or at least they're diminished in the sense of hitting the, the market. So um, we have thrust all of our marbles into the construction realm where we're seeing we're seeing great opportunity. Now on the side, I know you're an investment show. On the side, Josh and I, we flip houses. We run our own campaigns to find and locate properties to do on, uh, ourselves. So for our public service is in construction, renovation. We work with investors to turn and flip their properties to build them up to a buy and hold, excuse me, repair them to a buy and hold place for, for our investors to hold them long term. But for us, we're doing the same thing as well. And then obviously uh, having companies, real estate companies, construction companies, we we decided that uh, we really need branding and marketing in today's day and age. You know, marketing changes every week, the different methods and, and styles in which you uh, can can bring your product and your service to the market. So we, we created a, a company with a, with a good friend of ours who owns and operates that company, moosemojo.com. So I'm not sure if I gave you too long of an answer, but that's the progression of, uh, of our life and our experience. Yeah, that makes sense. So you started as real estate agents, foreclosure happened. So you scaled out to different markets. Then you saw through that scaling that there are repair bids and coordination that needed to take place. So you created another company, Press Pro, um, to do that remotely. Uh, and then you uh, ventured into new construction once that settled down um, and the, the high demand and low supply was, or the prices were being driven up by high demand and low supply. So you started construction and then on the side you're doing flipping and you've got the branding and marketing agency to kind of help things, whatever aspect of any of your companies that you need help. Yeah. Yep. That's it in a nutshell. So out of all those businesses, flipping, renovations, new construction, branding, marketing agency, real estate agent, press pro, what's the most profitable? Well, it kind of ebbs and flows, you know, just depending on the market conditions. So it really pays off to uh, to be diversified. You know, if you ask us this year, building homes is our most profitable margin wise and dollar amount wise. So but, you know, all of it's good. It's just a matter of being diversified enough to to be able to pick up those, you know, kind of tongue in cheek way of saying dividends. You know, you're picking up dividends off of each business. You know, our, our goals probably like most of your uh, your listeners are to build a real estate portfolio for passive income. And, you know, through the the avenue that we take to to do that is right now we're, we're building most of our own rental homes and we're building some multifamily buildings to, to buy, uh, to hold. And so long-term, those are absolutely the most profitable because they more or less run themselves. We own a property management company, so our management fees are low. We have a construction company, so our maintenance fees are low, and we have assets just sitting and working for us in the background while we're out making more money to be able to buy more of those uh, of those assets and build more of those assets. Um, just as far as the retail market goes, building homes, uh, custom homes, and um, and the custom like higher end renovation kitchen and bathroom remodels are definitely a uh, a large ticket item and a large profit part of our business. There are so many ways we can take this conversation. I love it. I mean, <laughs> more so than I think any other interview I've done with anybody just because of, of all the different things. I'm going to go a way that perhaps people might not be expecting me to go. I'm going to go towards the partnership angle because I'm curious to know how you two, you've been partners for nine years. 
And I think it's interesting that you're tackling this together because real estate, even though it is such a relationship-focused business, it seems like there's a lot of solo entrepreneurs who are kind of trying to build their business on their own while bringing in team members, but not really doing this partnership style that you all are doing. So how do you, here's a, here's a very tactical question, and then we can go more high level, but on the fix and flips that you do in, well, actually on the buy and holds that you do, because you said like other investors, you're wanting, your goal is to build a real estate portfolio for passive income. How do you determine who owns what percentage of the passive income buy and holds? Well, let me first start and address the partnership thing. After about the third year of partnership, Josh stopped throwing well, like staplers and stuff at me. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, I'm, I'm kidding. Josh is probably one of the most even keeled guys. I'm very high strung. And honestly, like in any partnership, um, let's just take marriage, for example, with, uh, you know, with husband and wife. There's a certain level of humility and trust that has to be in play. So that's why it works for us. Josh and I are both born again believers faith in God is the core of our lives. And from that foundation, our partnership is successful. We understand covenant with God first and foremost. So therefore, covenant with a brother is is an easy uh, a segue. So I just wanted to address that first. Secondly, how do we figure out what percentage? You know, we got into business and we just said, man, if we're all in together, we're all in together. So Josh will work on projects independent of me. I will work on projects independent of him. At the end of the day, we funnel everything into into the coffers and um, not so much concerned about our own personal wealth, really kind of try to push away greed and the temptation for greed as much as possible, understanding that if you can focus on breathing life into every partnership, into every deal, into every situation, looking to side on the error of someone else first before yourself, that you can be successful. And that's really what that's really what we've done. So we've we don't look at it and say, okay, well hey, how much percentage of work are you doing on, on this project as opposed to me and let's divvy it up. It's it's all fifty fifty. And um, that's been a key to our long long term relationship and success. And how do you typically divide and conquer? What are each of you specialize in? Josh is, is a very technical guy. He's very gifted in negotiations. So he'll tend to hop on more of the operational end of things as far as the nitty gritty process, as far as getting in and understanding negotiations and making sure we're getting in the right deals. I will tend to, to lean towards more of the, the culture of our company, management, really trying to pull in the right people to help us you know, move our, our ships forward, so to say. Both of us have a certain set of gifts and, and uh, abilities that, um, that we've obviously learned of each other um, over the last 10 years. So we, you know, it just, we kind of, we, we really tackle a lot of things together initially. And then from there, one person usually just naturally takes the lead. And that makes sense. And, you know, with each of you kind of honing in on, on what you're good at, I, I imagine that helps the partnership uh, in addition to um, the threat of a stapler being flown at your, your face if things don't, don't go well. With the multifamily buildings, now you said you're building multifamily. How do you identify the right site to build and what's the feasibility process look like? Well, I mean, like with any other type of investment, you kind of want to back into the numbers. So for us, when we look at a multifamily site, I mean, our initial cut, like if we were just going to say the very first thing that we ask ourselves, 
whether, you know, to qualify it or not qualify it is, uh, you know, is the land cost, does the land cost itself immediately disqualify this property from being successfully, you know, a profitable or a successful investment? So if the answer to that question is no, and, you know, the land cost is in line, then, you know, we've got to go through the normal steps that it takes, you know, such as, before you jump into that, can you drill down on how you determine if the land cost itself immediately disqualifies it from being profitable? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so development cost, if it's in a big ditch or if it's in a ravine or, you know, if there's if we know if there's known to be bad soil, then the land cost obviously needs to be lower because the uh, development cost will be higher. So some of the other things that, you know, that we look for, are, you know, is there any immediate economic indicators that would disqualify it? Like, you know, if a place is, I mean, you know, just to be straightforward, if some place is in the really deep blighted ghetto, then we're not going to pay top dollar for that land as opposed to something maybe across the street from a university campus or something like that. And then, you know, just kind of knowing what the number of units that can be built there in terms of like the zoning code. So if we say, all right, this is a, you know, a 12 unit zoning, then we know about how much a 12 unit building needs to cost. And so from there, you could say, well, the construction cost will be this much. We're estimating the land development cost of this much. Therefore, we would need to be able to get the land for this much or less in order for this to be a good deal. And we base that all on what our cap rate will be on the money once the building is fully rented. And with any of those, where do you figure out the income that's coming in? Because I heard the, you know, the cost, any economic indicators disqualify it. But then do you juxtapose that with the potential income that you get from it? Yeah, we have a little bit of a, of a one up because our costs are lower than most people's uh, because we own the management company and the construction company. And also we have some historical data on, you know, if we're buying in an area that we already own other properties, we kind of just know what the income will be based on historical data. But like, for instance, just a real life example, we just bought a lot that is about a mile away from University of North Carolina, Charlotte. And, you know, it's an area that we haven't really owned. We're going to put um, a six unit luxury apartment building there and three bedroom, three bathroom, kind of uh, spinning it towards a grad student type of a deal. And, you know, we, we don't have any other properties that are exactly like that in the area. So, you know, it's just a matter of, of rolling your sleeves up and doing some of the data mining. So, for instance, we started calling apartments, apartment complexes and asking them, hey, what, is, you know, what do you get for rent? What's your vacancy rate look like? You know, what kind of things are your tenants looking for? What kind of things help your property, your apartment lease for more money? So, you know, they'll they'll have various answers. One of the things that people love is granite countertops. Well, as a construction company, we get granite fairly inexpensively. So little things like that let us know, man, if I can get 25 bucks a month more for an apartment because I put granite in it as opposed to like a laminate countertop, then I'm by all means going to do that. And it allows us to, to uh, determine, you know, we never really go with like our max rent. Like if I know the rent range is 1250 to 1350, we'll usually run our numbers off of somewhere in the middle. But um, it does give us an idea of at least a bracket of rent that we'll be in so that we can start to uh, build a performa on that apartment complex, you know, or, or even a simple home. We can start to build a performa and, and understand what kind of rent potential it has. With the six unit luxury apartment building, 
when you're calling the uh, other apartment communities in the area and you're asking them, what do tenants look for? What can you lease for more money? Who do you say you are? And are they willing to give that information all the time? Yeah, actually, I mean, and Joe, uh, Josh is right when he says we're getting that information, but we'll often call, not tell them who we are. I mean, we're just, hey, do you have any three-bedroom, two-bats available? What What are the amenities? What's your vacancy rate? And we can kind of derive the data ourselves. You know, we can ask questions like, you know, what other features do you have at, at, you know, at your complex? And then, so if I call three of them, right, and one of them's like, man, I I can't keep a unit open. You know, they're, I got a waiting list. And then I can ask them what their amenities are, what, what their apartments look like, what are the sizes, do they have two bathrooms, you know, the, the three bathroom concept that we're kind of putting towards this six unit thing is because we, we know that uh, we did the research with other multifamily and even single family uh, rentals in the university area and they're all saying they rent by the bathrooms, forget the bedrooms, all these students they want to know they have their own bathroom. And so we're like, well, shoot, that's easy. Let's just add a third bathroom. That therefore our rents could be higher. And um, same thing with the granite countertops. You know, one of the one of the apartment complexes says, well, we have granite and hardwoods, and they can't keep tenants out. There's a waiting list. Whereas you go into another apartment complex just down the street, and they don't have either of the things. So, and they have four or five units available. So I guess. We kind of back into that information. We don't just come up front and ask them. First of all, the people that answer the phones typically aren't going to know that answer or, or know how to answer that anyway. When you are looking at the overall returns of, say, the six-unit luxury apartment building, what's your goal in order for it to be worthy of you moving forward? How do you evaluate the returns? Well, we look at a net cap rate. We look for a net cap rate of at least 10% which is kind of high compared to other investors. But since, you know, since we're looking at established homes as well as potential homes that we could build. So on the houses that we build, we see a much higher cap rate, which kind of makes us a little, I don't want to say greedy, but you know, it makes us, it makes us desire, like it'll, it'll make us disqualify a house that might have like a seven or 8% cap rate, which a lot of investors would immediately jump on. But since we're building some and getting a higher cap rate, we we kind of set our floor or bottom threshold at 10%. And, you know, a lot of the houses, like I actually was just looking through our numbers uh, yesterday afternoon, and our average cap rate right now across our portfolio is up around 15 or 16%. It's like 15.4%. So, you know, we want to add assets to our portfolio that don't diminish that average because obviously, you know, I mean, the reason you build a portfolio for real estate is to make good passive income. And so, you know, we're not, we're like super conservative when it comes to this stuff. I mean, we, we aggressively go after deals, but we don't take many risks at all because it is a passive income. And it's something that if you build it right, you'll have that money coming in for a long, long, long time. And as you take risks, I mean, that was one of the big deals that happened when the market crashed in real estate several years back you know, people were just taking huge risks and risks that they shouldn't have been taking. And so, you know, from our perspective, we have history, you know, to learn from. And we also have the ability to make good decisions. And we figure we might as well do both of those things in order to to do this smart. So, so it's not just like a flash in the pan, you know. When you're, when you're buying these properties, are you using investor money or are you using all of uh, your company's own money? A little bit of both. We have projects that we started with uh, third-party investors where, you know, they 
you know, basically it's not really a hard money loan. It's just folks that we know and that want to invest and, you know, there's a specific return we give to them. And we obviously have a really good well, relationship with uh, with our banking institutions and uh, have no problem getting funds from them. And then obviously we have our own coffers that we've built up as well. So we typically build our own portfolio, like when we're building our rental houses, which by the way, we don't have just our own build houses. We've picked up a lot of houses along the way and, and fix them up to, to hold as rentals. But uh, we typically will use our own money and then we go back to the bank after we have several units and then just basically when we know we need to to leverage that for you know for expansion then we can go and get a line of credit based off that and use it as we need what is your team's best real estate investing advice ever well it just depends on what kind of real estate investing right we've kind of hit a bunch bunch (laughs) of areas here but um, i would say this if if you're flipping a house i would not be shy on making that house the best looking house on the inside than all the other comparables that you're selling against. And I know oftentimes flippers are very, you know, conscious of the bottom dollar, how much they're putting in and they look at it and they have their initial assessment of what they can sell their house for. Right. And they're like, man, if I I can only put $30,000 in this rehab, if I go to 35, you know, it's going to push me over the edge. But the reality is in most markets today, and we know a lot of them, you are going to be able to sell your house for more than you thought when you originally purchased that flip. In other words, we're talking about a supply and demand issue. Supply's down in most markets today. So we're selling every one of our flips for about 10%, well, I'd say about 8%, higher than what we initially uh, thought we could sell it for. And so, and we're selling them fast because we're going ahead and we're doing the, the, the right upgrades on the front end. So that would be a good piece of advice for the flippers out there that are that are working that market. And I'll, I'll piggyback on that real quickly. The very first step to making a good real estate investment, you know, the best real estate advice ever that I would give is underwrite the property conservatively so that you have the, and what I mean by underwrite is make sure that you've done your homework and don't sit, don't get emotional and say, hey, I need to be willing to take a risk on this one. I just don't take risks. You know, you don't need to do that. There are good deals out there, especially if you can get creative in finding those deals, because you will make most of your money on the purchase of the property. It's, it won't be on the set. You know, I mean, you've heard people say that, but you make most of your money in negotiating on the purchase. It's, it's the easiest way to make a big chunk of money on a property. And then that'll give you the leeway in your budget to be able to do things like what John is talking about that are the difference between, you know, just overspending or spending on things that make your house more sellable. Because if you have a house next door and you're in a hot market where, you know, people are getting top dollar, if you have three or four properties that go on the market in the same neighborhood during the course of the time that you're flipping that house, you better have something in your pocket that those guys don't have that'll make your house sellable. So things that we do, you know, we put granite in every bathroom, which, you know, in, in Charlotte, especially in the you know 150 to 250 house price range, there's not granite in any bathroom, but we put granite in every bathroom. And we do nice backsplashes, tile backsplashes in the kitchens. And you know we do, a lot of times we'll do finish on site hardwood floors as opposed to a pre-finished or a carpet. So paying attention to your underwriting up front, being conservative enough to give yourself room in your budget to put really awesome, like what we'll call a wow factor, into the house over the course of the construction will always put you out in front of your competitors. You know, if, if something kind of changes during the course of construction and you have some more competition 
that you maybe didn't expect when you were doing your original underwriting. That makes sense. And one question that came to mind whenever you were talking about the don't take risks, and you said there are good deals, especially if you get creative in finding the deals. What's one way that you or your team has used to get creative in finding a deal? For us, initially in Charlotte, we were the first guys putting yellow signs out that say we pay cash for houses. We started doing that. I mean, it doesn't sound like that long ago, but we started doing it like five years ago when nobody else was doing it. And now everybody does it. But that was, you know, if you're in a market, you know, that doesn't have people that are putting yellow signs out and say, we pay cash for houses. If you don't have those guys in your market yet, do it. Because those things make our phones ring off the stinking hook with people that don't want to work with a real estate agent or they think, you know, they're going to have to pay way too much or lose too much money on a real estate deal. They'll call us all day long and say, I just, man, I just need to get out, you know, and, and sometimes there's some sad stories and that's the reason they have to get out. Sometimes they just want to get out. And sometimes they say, well, I don't, a realtor's told them, well, you got to fix your house up in order to put it on the market. And, you know, they're just like, well, I don't have the money to do that. So that is, you know, for us, that was one of the things that really helped us to start pulling those flips into our portfolio you know, and then of course you come across all types of properties. We've bought rentals that way. In fact, we're looking at two of them tomorrow. People called us and we, we looked underwrite the property on paper. It looks like a great rental property. And if all goes well, when we walk through it, we'll buy them and keep them as a rental. So that's an awesome way. And we have a bunch of other ways that we do it as well, but that's, to me, that's one of the ways to kickstart a campaign. If you're looking to acquire properties, especially if you're in an area, even when there are other people that have those signs out, but especially if there aren't other people that already have those signs out, man, that is like such an easy way to be able to get that thing kickstarted. You two ready for the best ever lightning round? We are ready. All right. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Come on. All right. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Crowdfunding. You've heard about it. Now it's time for you to learn about it. Our best ever sponsor today, Patch of Land, they're the leading expert in the crowdfunding space, and they've got all the answers to all of your crowdfunding questions. Go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever and get your copy of the top 10 answers to the top 10 crowdfunding questions. That's P-A-T-C-H-O-F-L-A-N-D.com forward slash best ever. What's the best ever book you've read? The Bible. Best ever personal growth experience and what'd you learn from it? Ooh, I could speak for John. <laughs> Having an employee that pulled the wool over our eyes and took some money from us. And what we learned from it is business is not all peachy keen. And there are times when it pays to, uh, to have some depth in your roster of people that are kind of looking over and, and helping to protect you. Best ever deal you've done? Best ever deal I've done was, uh, was actually a loss because it was the sixth investment property I purchased and I bought on speculation. And that is what I have now learned the wrong thing to do. So I lost money in that deal, but the, uh, the wisdom I gleaned from it is irreplaceable. So that is the best deal I've done. Best ever project you're most excited about right now? We're working on a 25 lot neighborhood that we're, um, we picked up uh, again off of one of these campaigns that we're running and uh, we bought some land at Acreage. And um, we're developing it into 25 lots, so it's it's going to be a it's going to be a money maker. We're excited about it. Is that the largest project you two have worked on? Single family development, yes. Yeah, we've worked on other things, but that one was a, a massive undertaking in terms of the real estate investment world. How'd you fund it? Well, cash. 
right now. And the, as we build the houses, they will, there'll be a mixture of financing and cash. Um, we'll probably pre-sell quite a few of them, but you know, once we're, we're in the middle of it right now, so we've just got a lot of cash out of pocket and we, we need some buildable lots to be completed and padded out before we can start looking for the funds to, to do, you know, other things there. Best ever way you like to give back. Well, we do quite a few things. Our business supports several local nonprofits. We support a group called Justice Ministries, which helps women and children and even men who are trapped in the sex trafficking industry be rescued and get back on their feet. That's been an awesome thing that John and I have been involved in. And we we also, uh, you know, we're, we're involved with several nonprofits. John specifically has been instrumental in starting up a nonprofit actually overseas in Philippines that's been doing feeding programs and giving back to the community in Davao City, which was actually formed out of another business entity there that we had started. So yeah, we could go on and on about that. You might have mentioned this already, but what's the biggest mistake you've made in real estate? Well, I would say just speculating and and taking risks that didn't need to be taken. You know, we haven't, we've been very, very fortunate to not have taken many losses. We've taken, you know, one or two small ones, but we've learned to be conservative because of that. So to me, as a broad scheme, is is not not to be super generic uh, or not to be super specific, to be more generic. We've made mistakes not underwriting properties carefully, taking more risks than we necessarily need to to take. And so sometimes it can be, it could just be a, a, a loss because it causes you to lose focus for a period of time. And other times it can be a, a financial loss. But thankfully, we haven't had many financial losses. And lastly, what's the best ever place to reach you to? Man, I would say... Josh is, is on his boat. Yeah. <laughs> Me, I'm the one that sticks in the office and works all day. <laughs> you didn't mention that whenever you're, you were talking through the responsibilities each of you have. <laughs> yeah, I have a responsibility to be on the boat, and uh, John has a responsibility to work. So I always say work hard and play hard, and John always asks me when I'm going to start working. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you've got the website, presspro.com. Is that the best place for people to find you? Yeah, find us there, P-R-E-S-P-R-O.com. And uh, of course, you can always call us or email us. We're happy to um, you know, to, to interact that way. You can find us on Facebook, find us on LinkedIn. I mean, you can kind of track us down. If you Google, we were in Inc. 500 last year. So if you Google our names, we should be able to find us out there pretty easily. Awesome. Well, congrats on all the success and just the the interesting ride that you've had and the progression from starting as real estate agents to identifying a huge foreclosure opportunity as you called it where banks need help needed help liquidating assets then you represented 1800 listings at one time mainly reo then you saw that evolve into repair bids that were needed so you created press pro and you've now gotten into construction and new construction with single family homes and multifamily. You've got this big old 25 lot, yes, 25 lot neighborhood that we're working on, which is a, a huge undertaking, I imagine. And then talking through your partnership structure and, and how you approach things uh, with humility and trust and kind of the, how you all approach it with the faith based underlying everything as well as the threat of staplers at any point in time should somebody get out of line and then you know talking about the multifamily site and how you do the feasibility initial feasibility where the question that you ask is does the land cost itself immediately disqualify the property and what you look at it specifically are any anomalies or anything that might be a big old cost to development like the a ditch 
or a ravine or bad soil or any economic uh, indicators that disqualify it, you know, not a good area. And then also knowing the number of units that can be built there um, because that directly ties into the income that can be generated from it. I remember one of my developer friends, he said density equals dollars. So the more dense we can make it, the more dollars that we'll make. So thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your wonderful advice and allowing the best ever listeners to get to know you. And we'll talk to you soon. Sure, Joe. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks, Joe.